it is um, on us as a company and as an industry to show where that science and innovation creates value for consumers um, and really you know, helps them take more control over their personal health. So again, um, you, need, you need products, you need science, you need innovation. You also need that health literacy and education. So you're meeting people where they are and they understand how to really improve their personal health. Welcome to the new HBW Insight over-the-counter podcast with me, David Ridley, Senior Editor, Europe. In this new podcast, I'll be talking to industry figures and experts about new trends and issues emerging in the global consumer healthcare market. In this episode, I chat with Bayer's Daniela Foster about the emerging self-care movement. Daniela is Global Vice President and Head of Public Affairs, Science and Sustainability for Bayer Consumer Health. We dive deep into what is driving the self-care movement and some of the challenges industry faces in building this movement in a purposeful way as we come out of the pandemic. Hi David, how are you? Hi Daniela, thanks for talking to me again. Indeed, it's good to see you. You know, I think self-care, I think we spoke about this before um, and you know, it's been around for a while and, and in this industry, you know, it's been a concept or, a, you know, a kind of name for what uh, what we're doing, um, you know, for a while that's been used as a kind of umbrella term. But I feel like just recently it's taken on a kind of new importance, not, you know, not just because of COVID and prevention and stuff, but yeah, maybe just as a kind of mega trend or something like that. I don't know whether you think that's the case. Yeah, so I think, I mean, look, I think that the difference right now is, you know, we've all had to self-care in the midst of this pandemic, right? So in in many ways, I think the future of self-care is really the future of healthcare, especially when you think about things like prevention. Um, Self-care is much more about, you know, it's about staying well, and it's also about getting well. So I think that's one of the big difference. Um, And I kind of like to think about it this way. There are, you know, 525,600 minutes in a year. And even in developed countries where let's say you spend 100 minutes over the course of a year with a doctor, and, and that that's probably being generous, right? That's in a good year. That means that, you know, you have more than 525,000 minutes where you need to be in charge of your health, really on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, when we see things like access to basic and essential health care lacking in half the world, this can be this can be kind of scary. Um, but I think the self-care movement is really about starting to shift the focus in healthcare today to expanding that healthcare continuum and to really including self-care and preventative care and treatment into that continuum and also arming people with the information that they need to to really take care of themselves. Yeah, you mentioned uh, the the kind of idea that there's a movement um, either in process or, you know, to be built, um, which is something that I also picked up from from that webinar and, and was one of my questions. So, um, I mean, you've already said a little bit about what that looks like, but maybe you can say a bit more, but also about who's driving that movement. You know, is it consumers or is it companies like Bayer or organisations like the Global Self-Care Federation or the World Health Organisation? What does that movement look like? 
Yeah. So David, I think it's really all of the the above, right? And it's a bit of what we just started talking about. And that is, you know, there's an opportunity to sort of reimagine healthcare and reimagine where health happens and think about that new continuum of care. And that's where, you know, you have self-care and preventative care um, on one end of that continuum and sort of disease care on the other, right? And if I think about um, the things that have just happened over the last year, you have the launch of the Global Self-Care Index um, that was done not only with the Global Self-Care Federation, but in partnership with the World Health Organization. You have um, consumers who have really had to spend the time during the pandemic self-caring. Um, and in many cases, who have also had to care for their homes, care for their family, in some cases, care for their community. So I think we've just seen seen it and experienced it in a way that is much more personal. Then I think, you know, if I if I sort of just turn um, some of the thinking on the on the Bayer side, you know, in our consumer health division at Bayer, we we believe we really believe it's our purpose to transform everyday health. And and, you know, we see ourselves doing that in a number of ways. You know, on, on one hand, we create trusted science based self-care products that people can rely on with you know, some of the brands that they love. We also create programs for both healthcare providers and consumers. And, you know, the goal here is really to help them understand the various aspects of their health so they can take better care of themselves. We also work with retailers to make sure our products are readily available. And then another kind of big effort that I'm really excited about is we We've set our, you know, sustainability commitments with this intention as well. So we have our 100 million goal where we're looking to expand access to everyday health for 100 million people in underserved communities by 2030. And the focus there is a bit of a 360. It's, you know, working on getting people access to the health solutions they need. This includes not only access to products, but access to health education. It includes partnerships with NGOs and looking at some more of those kind of wraparound services that are needed. It looks at, yeah, how do we tackle access in health deserts, for example. So um, there's a lot that's, that's moving and uh, a lot that, that I'm personally excited about as well. Yeah, I think it's, um, it's good that you, you spoke about what Bayer's doing, because we talked about this last time and interviewed before. And I think, you know, you've got some really good examples there, haven't you, of, of how you're actually contributing to, if there is a movement, you know, how you're contributing to that to that movement, for example, you know, giving the supplements um, in those underdeveloped countries, uh, making them affordable. Um, and I think, you know, the, within the kind of sustainable development goals kind of framework as well. But, but there's a difference between, you know, kind of just saying, you know, we are doing some sustainable stuff or, you know, we're, we are subscribing to these goals and actually doing things like these concrete projects. So, um, so I think that is a good example, but you know that's important, isn't it? Um, like you were talking about last time, to do to actually be seen to be doing what you're you're saying as well. Yeah, and in fact, you know, if I think about um, when we connected last and now, 
a lot has moved, right? So we launched the Nutrient Gap Initiative. Um, you know, we've been working with partners and local governments to expand access, for example, the prenatal care um, and multiple micronutrient supplements. We're, we're on track to um, you know, reach 300 women or, or 3 million, rather, women and their babies by the end of this year uh, with access to health education, prenatal care, um, and working closely again with local NGOs. So it's been an exciting year. Even in the midst of um, even in the midst of a, a pandemic. Yeah, and let's talk about the uh, the pandemic a little bit. I mean, I think we're all probably a bit sick of talking about it in one sense. But when we're talking about this self care movement, I mean, has it has it has the pandemic helped or or hindered or a bit of both? Um, you know, this self care movement that we've been talking about. I think in many ways, the pandemic has been a golden opportunity for the self-care movement. I think we all have had the moments over the past 20 months when we've realized how important it is for us to be able to take care of ourselves at home. And if I think back to before the pandemic, most people probably just didn't put much stock in the care we give ourselves at home to prevent and treat illness. But the pandemic, I think it's changed things. It's empowered people. And these extreme circumstances have also shown that you know, people can take more control over their personal health. And really, I mean, like I mentioned at the top, the majority of the time um, we're not with a doctor, right? So that self-care piece is pretty much what we do every day. And of course, the, the focus on prevention has really stepped to the forefront. And we, we see this in a lot of things. So for example, how to increase immunity um, was the second most trending Google search in 2020. And, you know, we saw vitamin and, uh, sales skyrocket. So really taking care of your health at home was a necessity. And we're seeing, you know, some of these habits start to stick, particularly um, in countries with access to, to self-care. So on the, on the flip side of that, though, I think our health systems are still overtaxed around the world. And, you know, one of the goals of this movement is to expand that healthcare continuum to include preventative care and treatment. And, and to include it more seriously. It's sort of still been a bit on the sidelines to date. So if we think about if we think about it, at the end of the day, we need to think about well care, not just sick care. And I think, you know, with COVID still prevalent in most parts of the world, health systems need to focus on vaccine education and distribution and other aspects of protecting society from disease uh, versus starting, you know, new programs and, and services. Yeah, exactly. And and this kind of links to another uh, one of the issues that was raised by the webinar, um, which I thought was was a really kind of interesting point, because uh, on the one hand, you know, one of the kind of cases made for self-care is that it can relieve uh, the burden on um, on public health systems. And there's, you know, lots of evidence that shows that that's the case. But then at the same time, you know, self-care is also about what um, your ability to to be able to use that um, that channel, isn't it? You know, like um, being able to afford medicines, uh, self care medicines, but also, you know, something that also is talked about a lot in terms of health literacy. You know, your background, your education, um, your you know your community, the kind of resources that are available there. 
how do you see that um, that issue as a kind of barrier that that maybe needs to be overcome in the self-care movement? Yeah, it's, it's a good question, and, and I will say it's something that I, I think about a lot. So, look, I think first we we need to think more broadly about how people take care of their personal health, and, and that's kind of like period, full stop. We, we just need to think about it more broadly, and it's not just about the products they use, but it's about their understanding of, of what to actually do. And I think health education is critical. I think it's an often forgotten part of healthcare. Um, and we, we saw this too in the recently released self-care readiness index from the Global Self-Care Federation and the World Health Organization. Health literacy was highlighted as one of the four key enablers of self-care. So if we consider, you know, the, the health education effort, for example, behind COVID-19 handwashing and those best practices. That's a great example where, you know, health ed education was critical. It was, you know, efforts that were orchestrated, they were focused, they were made simple for people to implement them, and so they did. And there's, there's a lot of information out there, um, but sometimes it's not always accurate or beneficial. And I think this is the piece that really needs to change because in order for people to feel empowered, they need to be confident in their ability to take the right actions. So the, the good news I think with health education is that these programs don't need to be complicated. They, they just need to meet people where they are and they need to meet them in the ways that they're most receptive to information. And, and I think that's really critical when we're talking about you know, access in underserved communities. For instance, if I think about um, some of our markets in Latin America, so some of our Bayer markets there, you know, the government approved use of leveraging QR codes to help educate on a range of health topics. And consumers, particularly in the midst of the pandemic, have been getting um, more comfortable with QR codes because they're seeing them in a lot of places. You see stores putting them up. You see, you see restaurants sort of incorporating them. Um, and, you know, they're, they've been using them in the midst of the pandemic. So we see that even in low literacy, low health literacy communities, people are getting much more comfortable with QR codes. So that's another example where you know, we should be using those for health education too. Um, and that's something that, that I can see coming and will be a good opportunity. So you know, going back to your, your question too regarding access to health products, I completely agree with this. And, and you know, at Bayer, um, this, this sort of barrier to self-care, it's one that needs to be fixed. Um, and we see this as part of our responsibility to help do it. And as I mentioned with our sustainability commitments, this focus on expanding access to self-care for 100 million people in underserved communities by 2030, it definitely is something I focus a lot of my time on. And it includes the health education piece um, that we talked about. It also includes ease of access to products. So this is, for example, focused on ensuring our products are within both physical and financial reach. So we're finding ways to expand the retail landscape so our products are more available in mom and pop shops, for example, and in other stores that are located in what might be considered a health desert where you 
don't necessarily have access to a hospital or to healthcare providers as easily as you would to one of these stores. And we're also working um, with our customers to make sure we have the right sizing and pricing so that it works for these communities. And we also um, have programs that expand access in, in an even more 360 way, right? So if I, if I think about what I mentioned earlier, the Nutrient Gap Initiative is a great example of this. This is you know, our signature program to expand access to vitamin, vitamins and minerals for you know, 50 million underserved communities by 2030. And we kicked this off in February, and we're, you know we're starting with a focus on access to prenatal vitamins because we know women and children are often the most vulnerable um, when it comes to this aspect of malnutrition. And the way that we think about this is there's really a three-pronged approach. It has three key focus areas. So one is around intervention, and this includes distribution of multiple micronutrient supplementation coupled with programs to ensure high adherence and working with governments to include this aspect of prenatal care as a part of their local health services. So we're actually working with them to improve antenatal care guidelines. And we're doing this in partnership with um, NGOs, with community health organizations. So again, that we're meeting people where they are. And then the second piece of this is around education. So we're partnering with Vitamin Angels and other NGOs. And with Vitamin Angels, we're actually working to develop a nutrition curriculum geared towards healthcare professionals and pregnant women to really help them um, understand the role nutrition plays, particularly in those first thousand days of life, which we know are critical. And then the third area is advocacy. So that's also where we're partnering with leading NGOs across sectors to support the global movement around maternal health. This piece is critical, and the goal is, is to really drive collective action and scale access to vital micronutrients. So a great step forward actually just happened over the last um, month when the World Health Organization added multiple micronutrient supplementation to their list of essential medicines. So a, a lot of things are already moving and there's been some great progress even since the beginning of the year um, and even in the midst of the pandemic. Yeah, I think, I mean, like I said before, I think that Bayer's work on this is a really good example. Um, and, you know, like you pointed out, uh, Bayer actually making these essential uh, nutrients and, and medicines affordable um, to people that need them, you know, in, in places all around the world. So, uh, so that's yeah, that's you know, I think a good example for everyone. And uh, one thing that you pointed out in there was um, was the role of information and related to health literacy. And you know, one of the ways that um, that you can expand access to both uh, products and information about products is through the internet and, and like you pointed out um, there's a there are some issues there in terms of the quality of information uh, and you know the internet's like a double-edged sword is it in that respect uh, on the one hand it's it's a very it's a democratizing force and it's letting people learn about um, about their health and how to look after it as well as finding all these different products they could access uh, but at the same time you know the quality of not just information but also of products is is a bit uneven um you know how how much of a problem is that um 
related to health literacy and and you know what can companies like Bayer do about that you know in in this specifically kind of digital space do you think yeah so I, so i think you know what's key here when we think about health literacy again i think it's super important i think people want and healthcare you know systems need to um, incorporate more health literacy and at the end of the day right this is about giving people the ability to to take control over their personal care so on the health literacy front i think it's critical that you have, um, you know, healthcare providers working together with communities to understand, again, the context, making things simple to meet people where they are, um, but having a bit of a clear sense and clear guidelines around health literacy and education. And that's where I think, you know, public-private partnerships are really important, for example. So, um, you know, local state, federal governments all working together with uh, the communities and in some cases you know, with private sector partners as well um, to provide access to information so that it's clear, so that it's credible, um, so that it, again, meets people where they are. I think that that's really important. I also think, you know, when we talk about um, you know, health literacy, sometimes it's not, it's not always that sexy tech solution, right? It, it is, it's basic, um, but it is so critical. And we know this, especially when we want to move towards behavior change, right? Like what we were talking about with hand washing during COVID. So I do think it's important to keep things simple. I think it's important to meet people where they are and that, that partnership across, um, across government and across sectors Sectors is also key as well. So you have a bit of, you know, surround sound on um, on what, you know, what is kind of credible, because I think that's important, too. We can't have a credibility crisis when we're talking about uh, health education and literacy. There needs to be um, a sense that, OK, great, this is credible and trusted information and um, it's collectively coming from from sources I can trust. Yeah, that, I mean, that's a very interesting thing as well, I thought, about um, about COVID, but also some of the, the discourse around self-care now is that they uh, that the that the coronavirus pandemic has really pointed to the importance of community. Um, and, you know, you have a, a lot of there was a lot of talk about digital people, use, you know, using their like apps and going online to find out about stuff and the problems that raises. But um, you know, a real theme I think that's come up and, and came up in that webinar is is the importance of community. You saw people looking after each other in communities during the pandemic. Um, you know, the importance of like local kind of experts, especially in, in, in more developing countries, like in the GSCF report, there was a couple of case studies around that. And then when I spoke to Heiko Shipper the other day, um, you know, your colleague, he pointed out that pharmacy is traditionally that community uh, part of the consumer healthcare ecosystem and that's really important as well um you know do you so i mean you clearly agree uh, that that community is important as well but um how does that fit together I think community is critical. And, you know, I was thinking about this the other day, because if we think about the self-care that we've all had to do through the pandemic, you know, one thing is sort of taking care of yourself and making sure you're healthy, right? 
but then there are um, there are big implications around that. So you want to make sure that you're healthy, so that by extension your family is healthy, right? You want to make sure um, you've improved your immunity, um, that you know you're going to be okay and resilient. And I think by extension we see that in communities as well. By you keeping yourself healthy as an individual. You can keep your family healthy, and then by extension, you can keep your community healthy. So especially when we talk about things like immunity, um, immunity and community are, are, are kind of interlinked, right? So I do think that um, this sense of community, community support, again, that access to health education and literacy in communities, meeting communities where they are. So for example, if you're in a community that's a health desert, um, then the ways in which you need to get your health education literacy have to be more creative. Um, it could be more through, um, through mobile. And, and we've actually worked with some NGOs that are community health providers and, you know, they work with midwives and they go into the more rural, harder to access communities in Guatemala. In other cases, we, um, you know, we, we have kind of like a mobile health clinic uh, that goes into various communities. So I think really meeting people where they are um, with what they have is also critical to this community piece. And I think there's also a collective sense, especially in the midst of the pandemic, that um, we all are part of a community. We're all collectively experiencing this together. It's a collective lived experience. And we're learning a bit from it. Um, I think we're all feeling more empowered to take care of our personal health. And then by extension, also feeling a sense of um, responsibility to you know, be healthy and maintain our health and maintain our immunity for our families and our communities. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, and then just quickly before um, we finish, because uh, I know you're, I'm sure you're very busy and you've got to go. Um, but there's this really interesting line in um in the Global Self-Care Federation Readiness Index report, um, which relates to the US, it's like part of the US section, as, as you'll know, uh, where self-care can mean everything and nothing from blowing your diet by binge eating ice cream or French fries uh, and having a glass of wine to ease stress at the, heart, at the end of a hard day or pampering yourself with a, a spa treatment or bubble bath. Um, you know, that, that really encapsulates just how broad a, a term it uh, self-care is um, and maybe you know that that is an issue or or an opportunity but I mean just to kind of be the devil's advocate you know wouldn't it be better to just limit self-care uh, to just mean you know science-based OTC medicines you know the kind of exactly the kind of products that, that Bayer uh, Bayer's reputation is based on and self-care medical devices and and you know approved dietary supplements um, but then, you know, on the other hand, would that really shut down innovation, which is really important as well? What's what's your view on that? 
Yeah. So I, you know, I think if we look at the term self-care, uh, you're right. It can mean everything and nothing. And, and there's, um, there's nothing wrong with a little pampering every now and again. And I'm sure we all like to have a bubble bath um, or get a manicure, right? When we talk about this, though, uh, in the context of personal health, and I think that's really the key here. The key here is the link to personal health. We know um, that there's a bit of a framework and some parameters for us to work within. So for example, if I think about the WHO definition on self-care, right, it, it's really being able to care for yourself um, with or, you know, without the support of, of a doctor. So, again, the anchor here is really personal health. And I'm really more interested in, in how we increase the uptake of personal health and in particular personal health literacy, like we've been talking about, and how we help people distinguish let's say, um, you know, products uh, between products and claims that are really science based. So, you know, this is this is as relevant in high income countries as it is and low and middle income countries. We, we, people want to know that what they're getting, what they're using, what they're taking is going to work, um, that it's effective, that it's science based, et cetera. And so, you know, Bayer and companies like ours we spend millions of dollars each year funding research to ensure our products are safe, um, that they do what they'll say that they will do. And you know, when we make a, a product claim, people should be able to trust it and not just see it as marketing. Um, so, so I do think the science-based component is critical. And you know, the innovation is really, let's say, what differentiates our products from you know, products that maybe aren't as rigorously tested or focused on driving health outcomes. And you know, it is um, on us as a company and as an industry to show where that science and innovation creates value for consumers um, and really, you know, helps them take more control over their personal health. So again, um, you need you need products, you need science, you need innovation. You also need that health literacy and education. So you're meeting people where they are and they understand how to really improve their personal health. And then, you know, I think words matter, of course. Um, but this isn't a discussion, a discussion that I think, you know, a lot of consumers are having. And even a term like self-care does not always translate across different countries and cultures. And so consumers are looking to improve their health, period, full stop. And, you know, that's really where I see the potential for self-care. So I think, you know, our time can really be, be better spent giving them the tools and information to help them do so. And, it, and again, I think it kind of comes back to what we've talked about a lot, which is the importance of um, physical access, the importance of making things physically and financially available, but then also at the end of the day, coupling that with health education and literacy. And that um, puts us on a great start towards giving people some of the tools that they need to improve their personal health. Well, thanks again for another really interesting interview and thanks for taking the time to talk to me and, and also appearing on our over-the-counter podcast. Thanks, David. It was good to connect with you. And look, I, I think there's a, a lot more that we're going to see happen in, in you know, self-care over the years to come. So I'm excited to, to keep the conversation going. Thanks for listening to Over the Counter. 
watch out for new episodes in the future on the HPW Insight website, on our LinkedIn and Twitter pages, and on SoundCloud. See you soon.